For the next four weeks, we're gonna work through Jesus' Sermon on the Plain from Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter six. If you wanna follow along in the Bibles that we provided for you, um, that's gonna start on page 1020. 1020. We'll start at verse 17 through verse 26 today. Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is the gospel of the Lord. So like I said, we're taking on Jesus' Sermon on the Plain for the next four weeks, and because of that, I think I'm going to have to invite you to make sure you make the next four weeks of worship a priority so you can get this whole unit, because we're not going to be able to cover all of it, and we need all of it in order to fully understand what Jesus is communicating to us in this Sermon on the Plain. But for today, we're going to focus, first of all, on those um, blessed are you statements and also sort of get an overview of the Sermon on the Mount so we get sort of kick-started down this path of studying it for the next couple weeks. Um, if, if those words that I read sounded familiar, it's because they are very similar to another place in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you heard I called Luke's Gospels account the Sermon on the Plain. And the reason for that is, well, when Matthew gives the account of Jesus' sermon in five through, Matthew 5 through 7, uh, he says that Jesus went up on a mountainside. And here, if you were le- listening to the text, you heard that Luke said he went to a level place. So we have these two accounts that are very similar. And what some people have done is they have said, well, look, these are forgeries. One is trying to copy the other, and therefore you can't believe that the Bible is true or that this at least portion of the Bible is true and you're all foolish for being Christians. Maybe you've never heard that, but that is a a criticism that is made of these texts. And so very quickly before we get into the text, I just want to answer that. One of two things is true. Either it was the exact same moment And Luke, knowing that Matthew had already written an extended account of Jesus' sermon, three chapters, chapters five through seven of Matthew's gospel, chose to truncate it and use it in a particular way for Luke's focus as a gospel writer. That's totally got precedent in ancient literature. It's got precedent in the Bible. A totally reasonable way to think of what's happening here. The other option, of course, is that it's just two different accounts. Two different times Jesus preached, and he said similar things each time. And this is totally reasonable also. Sometimes I write a sermon for Cross of Life and then I go guest preach somewhere else and I'll use essentially the same sermon, but I won't say exactly the same words because maybe I'm adjusting the message slightly for that audience or maybe I just forget a portion of what I'm supposed to say. 
You can say essentially the same thing in two different occasions, and that can be totally legitimate. I think what's really cool about this is if it is two different occasions, we can see that multiple eyewitnesses understood Jesus to be saying essentially the same thing. Like, in other words, Jesus was consistent, right? And then multiple eyewitnesses attest to this. So we can trust that these are Jesus' words. Now, that still leaves the question, why do we have two accounts? Um, And I I think, you don't have to hold me to this one, but um, I think the reason is because Matthew is using the Sermon on the Mount a certain way in the context, greater context of his gospel, and Luke is using it a different way in the context of his gospel. Um, But that doesn't so much matter for us today. What I want you to get is the main thrust of both of these sermons, the main point for us to think through today, and that is this, you can't do it. And that's good news. You can't do it. And that's good news. As you read these uh, verses, especially these first couple of verses, but throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount or Sermon on the Plain, our tendency is to turn the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain into essentially a divine to-do list or a divine self-help manual. Here's how you become a better or a good Christian. It's essentially a divine ladder that we climb up We look at these things and we say, blessed are the poor. Well, then I have to become poor. Blessed are those who are peacemakers in Matthew's gospel. That means I need to make more peace in my life. We get a little bit farther down the sermon, judge not lest be judged. Well, I gotta stop being so judgy. Or turn the other cheek when someone strikes you. I need to be a little bit more forgiving. We essentially turn it into this to-do list for how to become a better Christian. But that's not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. The Sermon on the Mount is actually all about Jesus. It's not about us. But it's our tendency, isn't it, to think that the Bible is always about us. You can see this right in the Bible. You remember the story of the road to Emmaus? It's in Luke's gospel right at the end after Jesus has risen from the dead and two of his disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus comes up behind them and they don't recognize him immediately. So Jesus has the chance to ask some pointed questions. And one of those is, why you guys look so sad? And they say, well, we we thought that this Jesus was going to be the one who restored Israel. And do you remember Jesus' answer? Don't you guys read the Bible? And then he went through the entire Old Testament and showed them that the entire Bible was about the Messiah. It was about how Jesus was supposed to come and Jesus was going to save people from their sins. But you see what they were thinking? They thought, well, the Bible and the Messiah is all about us. It's about our nation and our political prospects and, and our success as a people. But we do the exact same thing. I notice this in Bible study sometimes. If you're going through a Bible study and you'll look at a section of the Bible that's all about the salvation narrative. Jesus forgives our sins, Jesus dies, Jesus rises, the whole thing. And it's not that people don't care or that they don't have the right answers. But it's, not, it's just they're not excited about it. They're like, yep, Jesus forgives our sins, and that's great. But then you get to the parts of the, the Bible study, the text of the scripture that talk about what we do, and how we live, and how we think, and how we talk, or better yet, how somebody else is supposed to think, or be, or talk, and the discussion gets deep right away. We love to talk about all the applications of how we're supposed to live because, well, fundamentally, we think the Bible is about us. But Jesus is here to demolish that notion. 
He is here to help us realize that the Bible is not a divine to-do list, a divine self-help manual, a divine ladder, but it is a divine wall that we are to crash into and realize that we can't do it so that we can see the good news. To help you understand this, let me give you a couple um, thoughts to chew on. Maybe you remember the, uh, the self-esteem movement. You heard this term before. It's arguable when it started. Some people say 70s, some people say 80s, others say 90s. But the point was, essentially, if we give children more self-esteem, then they're going to have better long-term outcomes. So this is where statements like, uh, you're special just the way you are, or you have unlimited potential, or you can be whatever you want to be came from. On the surface, those statements sound encouraging, but now being a couple decades removed from the self-esteem movement, almost universally, anyone who researches it says that was a really bad idea. Can you think about why? In a former generation, a child didn't think they were special. They didn't think they had unlimited potential. They didn't think they could be everything that they wanted to be. They thought, I'm born into this family. I'm going to grow up in this family. Probably going to take over the family business, get married, live out my days. And while that doesn't seem all that exciting or like it has a high level of potential, you know what it is? Stable, clear, and purposeful. But we did the exact opposite as a culture. We started saying to children, you can be everything you want to be, and subtly communicated to them, and you should be. And you have unlimited potential, which subtly communicated to them, if you don't live up to that potential, you're an abject failure. We taught children that there were all these possibilities for them, and essentially we gave them anxiety and depression because they couldn't figure it out. We took away their stability, we took away their direction and purpose, and we see the results now. Jesus is trying to save us from essentially divine self-esteem, the divine self-esteem movement, if you will. That we would think of ourselves as having unlimited potential or being possibly really good people. Jesus wants us to crash into the wall of the law and find out we aren't. He wants you to know that you don't have unlimited potential. You can't be anything that you want to be. You're not going to be a success. And you might think that sounds really depressing. This is like the least motivating sermon ever. But it's actually a beautiful message. Because think about this. If you don't have that message, that you can't do it, then you will fall into one of two traps, and both are bad. On the one hand, you'll start to think, I'm actually kind of doing it. Like, I'm pretty successful in life. You know, I'm more patient than most, I'm more kind than most, I'm more generous than most, I'm more open-minded than most, I'm not as obsessed with politics as most, I'm more thoughtful than most, I'm more educated than most, I have more money than most, I'm more successful than most. We can start to think this way, and it leads us into self-righteousness. I'm a good person, and you're kind of not. And every one of us knows self-righteousness is not a good thing. On the other side, you'll start to think, if you are not living up, that you're worthless. We call this despair. I'm not living up. I'll never be enough. There's no hope for me. And every one of us knows, too, that despair is a terrible place to be. So what Jesus wants us to do is to crash into the wall of the law so that we don't have self-righteousness or despair. Because what he immediately does after telling us the law is he gives us the gospel that says the demands still stand and you will continue to crash into this wall and you can never live up to these demands 
but I have saved you from it. I have forgiven your sins. I have given you my righteousness. And only when you understand that will you be able to live an actually loving and peaceful life. I mean, think about this. We say that we should love our neighbors, right? It's a Christian teaching. I don't think we're unique in that as a Christian church. Many other religions, even people who not, are not particularly religious, think they should love other people. Do you realize you can't do it unless you believe this? You can't actually love your neighbor unless you believe this. Let me explain. Um, my wife, Johanna, was just having a, a conversation with um, a woman who was talking about how she serves other people, and she said, um, yeah, that's how you get to heaven. And Johanna had a really insightful comment on that. She said, well, if that's the reason why you're doing it, then you don't actually love the person. You're using them to accomplish something for yourself. You're using them so that you can get to heaven, not because you actually love them. You love yourself. So only when you realize that loving your neighbor is actually impossible and doesn't count for anything, can you start to actually love them genuinely. Maybe to help you understand this, think about a hobby. Maybe you have a hobby, you love your hobby. Um, I was once taught you should never turn a hobby into a job. If you like doing something, you shouldn't turn it into your work because you will immediately hate it. Because the joy in doing a hobby is the lack of obligation, right? I can do this when or whenever I want or don't want. And there's no obligation for me to produce so many widgets in so many hours. I can just do this because I enjoy it. But as soon as it becomes the thing that I have to wake up for every morning and it's required in order to feed my family, it becomes a chore. What Jesus is doing is giving you the opportunity to see loving your neighbor as a hobby. Not as something you're required to do, not as something that is dependent for your salvation, but something you're completely free to do because you can't do it in the first place. But he saved you from that. And so hopefully I've given you enough examples to, to pound this down your throats, but we can't do it. And that's beautiful. Maybe one last example. Um, I don't know if it's obvious, but I can't dunk a basketball. And so when I play basketball, I don't feel bad about that. I don't feel bad that I'm not going up and throwing one down because I can't. And it gives me the freedom to play a different type of game when I play basketball. In the same way, Jesus is saying, you actually are so free from the demand that you have on yourself to be a worthwhile person, from the demands that you hear constantly from the world that you need to be a good enough person. You are free from all those things, so you actually can live a completely different direction from everybody else. Everybody else is enslaved. They're enslaved to their expectations of themselves. They're enslaved to the expectations of their parents. They're enslaved to the expectations of the market or the culture or whatever people say men or women should or shouldn't be like. They're enslaved to these things and they live for them every day. But you, Christian, you don't have to be. Because when you realize that the Bible is not about you, you're set free. Maybe some of you were in theater earlier in your life. Maybe you're on a sports team, or, or maybe you took on a project and you were the key person, the point man on a project, and you felt the pressure of being in a high-profile position. You know that if you're lower on that totem pole of whatever the organization is, you feel less pressure, right? Jesus is telling you, you're allowed to see yourself at the bottom of this organization. Because at the bottom of this organization, you're free. God's not depending on you to pull it off. He depended on Jesus to pull it off. 
And Jesus did. And so you're free not to pull it off. Because Jesus was extraordinary, you're free to be ordinary. Because Jesus was a success, you are free to be a failure. Because Jesus was everything that God wanted out of a human being, you are free to be less than that. And I keep pounding this because I think we're addicted to it as a culture. We evaluate ourselves on so many things that aren't God's word. Am I smart enough, skinny enough, successful enough, wealthy enough? Jesus doesn't care. Like by yourself in your own works, you are an abject failure. But as as Jesus looks at you, you are everything that God wants. Not because you are good, but because Jesus is good. And because Jesus has forgiven you and baptized you into his name. And so if I can get you to repeat one thing over and over and over as we study this Sermon on the Plain, it's that I can't do it, and that's really good news. So now that we're free, let's see what Jesus has to say. Jesus starts his Sermon on the Plain by saying, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The word poor is really interesting because it has a number of facets to us, and I think as Western people, we don't really get them. The first is that being poor is not just about money. But I think we immediately think poor in terms of dollars in the bank, but that's really not completely true. Recently, again, Johanna was talking to a family member of hers who said, I'm poor. And what she meant by that is, I have no dollars in my bank account, but this same family member has a house they can live in, food to eat, more clothes than the average person living in the world. They're not poor, they just don't have a lot of dollars. So poor is not just about money. We can't think of it purely in terms of money. It's really a wholesome idea, everything that we have. And and being poor is not about lack of things, it's about insufficiency of things. If somebody has absolutely nothing, we don't call them poor. We call them some other word, broke, or something like this. Poor, we think, is you have some resources, but those resources are insufficient for living your life out. For example, if you have $100 in your bank account in Mississauga in 2022, that can only buy you so many things. But if you have $100 in your bank account in the bush of Africa in 2022, that can buy you a whole lot of things. See, it's not about the amount, it's about, is it sufficient for doing the things that I need to do? And third, poor is unchosen. Nobody wants to be poor. And if somebody is poor, they would rather get out of it. I realize that somebody can make a bad decision and get to some financial trouble or something like this, but as soon as they are poor, they don't desire to stay there. Everyone who's poor wants to not be poor, but they're stuck. They're stuck because they don't have the opportunities, they don't have the resources, they don't have the wherewithal, they don't have the motivation, whatever the case may be, but they're stuck. They can't fix it themselves. And I think we need to run all these thoughts through what Jesus is saying when he says, blessed are the poor. Because he's saying, blessed are those who see that what they have, regardless of what it is, not just money, but but relationships or success or, or a good name, all of these things are insufficient for what I actually need. And not just that, but I'm stuck in it. I think many of us could say, well, I don't have as much fill-in-the-blank thing as I might like or might want. But we also kind of have this idea that, well, if I work hard enough, I can do it. If I work hard enough, I'll get a promotion. If I work hard enough, I can find somebody to marry. If I work hard enough, I can be successful. Jesus says, blessed are you when you realize you can't, that you're stuck 
that what you have is not enough. I think probably the easiest thing to point to in this is the idea of your death. You are poor when it comes to keeping yourself alive. You have insufficient resources to keep yourself alive. And once you're willing to admit that, that you can't keep yourself alive, and that at some point, the final bell is going to toll for you, blessed are you, because you realize you need a Savior, and you have one. And we could apply this to a hundred other things in your life, but the idea here is just that I'm willing to recognize that I don't have enough. The second thing that Jesus says is, blessed are you who, are, who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Um, in contrast to the idea of poor, which is about insufficiency, I have something, but it's not enough. The idea of hunger is having nothing at all. Right? Okay, sometimes I say I'm hungry. I'm not actually hungry. Like I can go into the fridge and there's stuff in the fridge and there's stuff in the cupboard and I have enough money in a grocery store down the road. Like if I really wanted food, I could get food. I'm not hungry. I have the feeling of desiring food. But you know there are people in the world who are actually hungry, who don't have a cupboard or a refrigerator, who don't have a grocery store and don't have money to pay for one even if they did. Those people who have nothing, that's the attitude Jesus wants us to have to realize I don't have not just enough, but any. Now, again, this is not just about food. It's about looking at my life and realizing I don't have any of the things that God desires. That I realize that I'm not just a, a sort of okay or maybe sometimes bad person. That as far as the law is concerned, God's demands on my heart, I am an abject failure. That I'm not like pulling off about 35% of the law, I'm pulling off 0% of the law. But once I'm willing to admit that, blessed are you. Third, then he says, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Um, after my 12th grade year of high school, I went on a mission trip to Eastern Europe, and I got to meet a number of people and make a number of relationships there. And so I took a bunch of pictures with people. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is that um, generally the older a person was, the less likely they were to smile in a picture with me. And so I asked uh, one of the ladies about this, and, um, and she said, when you've lived here for as long as I have, you realize how sad life is. And if I would smile, I would be lying. If you know the history of Eastern Europe, you know it's a war-torn part of the world. And while the younger people in their culture haven't experienced much of that until recently, and have been influenced a whole lot by Western culture where we smile for just about anything, even if we don't really feel it. I mean, have any of you had this moment where you're like trying to take a family picture and there's bickering and fighting right before and then you all smile for five seconds, take the picture and back to the fighting? Like that's Western culture. They saw that, they think that's how it is, but those older folks who lived in Eastern Europe, they, they were honest about it. They saw how sad life was. And that's what Jesus wants us to see too. To not deceive ourselves into thinking, you know, it's okay, everything's going fine, we're pretty good, on a pretty good path. No, this world is messed up. And when you start to consider all the evil things that happen, whether it is corruption on a political level, corruption from oligarchs in our own society, who use their power to take money from people who are poorer than them. You see the treatment 
of children who are in our foster care system, the millions of abortions that have been performed in this country, sex trafficking, injustice against different races, and the fact that, I mean, honestly, if we look back even 20 years ago, life is not as good. If we're honest and we're willing to admit that, then blessed are you. If you're willing to look at this world and say, I understand that it is corrupt and it is ruled by Satan and that it is going to be ultimately destroyed and that means it's on a trajectory downward, blessed are you. Because Jesus is saving you from this world. Finally then, Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. So Jesus says, if you're going to live out your Christian life and you start to receive persecution from the world, whether it's insults or it's exclusions or it's rejection or it's hate, that's exactly how it should be. Because you're speaking a message that is repulsive to the world. I think sometimes we don't get this though. We, we want to be acceptable. We want to be attractive. We want people to look at a church and say, that's the kind of place I want to go. If we're honest and we're preaching the message of Jesus, it kind of can't be. Like, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to be generous and hospitable and compassionate with people, that we shouldn't try to be patient or reach out to people with kindness. But at some point, we're going to have to preach them an offensive message. The same offensive message that I'm preaching to you right now, you're not pulling it off. And if we're willing to preach that, then, well, we're going to receive persecution. I think the fact that sometimes we don't is maybe a testament to the fact that we're not preaching what Jesus said. But if we are living a distinctly Christian life, if we are speaking the words that Jesus has taught us to speak, and we receive that persecution, blessed are we. Because we're not here to grow a church, we're here to be a church. We leave the growing to Jesus. That's what he said. And so we hold on to one another and we hold on to the word because we know that this world is worth weeping over and that we, those who have, in some cases, an insufficient amount of whatever it is we need or none at all, are blessed, not because we're pulling it off, but because Jesus has. Now, the rest of the text, of course, Jesus gives us these uh, antithetical statements. He gives us these woes, right? That essentially say the exact opposite of what he has said in the blessed are you statements. And so I want to finish with this. I want us to realize that, that Jesus is for certain people, but he's also against certain people. Um, and that for or against, again, is not based on behavior, but it's based on an understanding of reality. That those who are willing to understand themselves to be poor in the sight of God, to be hungering for something they cannot have apart from God, who see this world as not something that can satisfy their every craving, but something worth weeping over, who see their behavior as something that isn't accepted by the world because that's how the world treated the prophets of old. Those are the people whom Jesus accepts. But he's against those who think themselves to be pretty good, to be doing okay, to not really need Jesus all the time. Those people who find their identity in who knows them or what they've accomplished 
or how good of a person they are. He's against those people. And so maybe to sum it up, let me give you one word that I think distinguishes between those whom Jesus is for and those whom Jesus is against. Desperation. Maybe you know this if you're a sports fan. Um, At the end of games, especially in the playoffs, uh, commentators will say they're playing desperate because they know they only have so many minutes to score or whatever it is to tie the game or win the game. And you know if you watch sports, it's just an extra level that those athletes can play play at when they're desperate. And no matter how good of a coach you are, you cannot manufacture desperation. You can try all you want. You'll never get your players to play that way. They just realize the situation that they're in and they play accordingly. So realize the situation that you're in. I don't have to tell you to try to be good to your neighbor. You will be if you realize the situation that you're in. That by yourself, you are not good enough for God, but in Jesus, you are everything that God has ever expected. And that now you're free. You have everything in Christ that you've all ever needed. It's all given to you. It's all guaranteed. So what are you going to do now? You're free to give everything you have to somebody else to be generous with time, energy, money, all those things. You're free. And Jesus is going to continue to pound this message on us for the next three weeks, probably because we need to hear it for more than, four, more than three weeks. You can't do it. But because of Jesus, that's really good news. Let's pray. Jesus, we are desperate. And even if we aren't, by your Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin and our insufficiency so that we become desperate. Because only then can we realize how great your grace is. Otherwise, Lord, we see you as an accessory, as something nice to have but not needed, as something that's good as long as I have time for it, but not something that my entire life depends on. Please, Lord, work that in our hearts so that we no longer rely on our accomplishments or our connections or our moral character, but on you in your accomplishments, in our connection to you, in your moral character. And then I ask that as those who have been freed from the tyranny of the expectations of this life, that you would make us forces for good. As people who can love, not because we need to pull it off in order to be successful or be loved or be accepted, but because we already are. I ask that for our church and for me. Amen.